It is great to see you all this morning. And we are going to pick up immediately where we left off in this last week out of James chapter 3. This last week in James 3, we were confronted by a big question in chapter 3, verse 13. James asked this question, who among you is wise and understanding? Who among you is wise and understanding? Think about those that are around you. Think about your friends. Think about your family members. Think about coworkers. Think about neighbors. Think about mentors. Think about teachers. Who among you is wise and understanding? Is a question that is designed to get us to think. Does that description describe you? Does it describe somebody close to you? Or maybe the other part of that is, are you struggling to fit that description with anyone in your circle of influence? And if that's the case, it points to another issue altogether. So this last week, we discovered that phrase, wise and understanding, refers to people who not only have a knowledge of, but also are skilled in the application of righteous living. That is, it's more than just having a head full of knowledge. It's more than just having a life full of zeal. Rather, it is the proper application of that knowledge that leads to a righteous life. And for anyone who says, that describes me or that describes someone I know, James brings an immediate command. He says, let him show by his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. It's one thing to make the claim, but James is saying the person who makes the claim should be able to display it, show it by their life. All of that is what led into our big truth from this last week. When asserting wisdom or claiming wisdom, our claims are evaluated by our conduct. Our claims are evaluated by our conduct. Our lives will either confirm or negate our claims. And for those who claim to be wise and understanding, he specifically says in verse 13, there's going to be several traits that come along with that. There's going to be good behavior and good deeds and an attitude of gentleness to those who are around you. All of that is packaged together in verse number 13. Well, today, picking up in verse 14 and going all the way through what we find in verse 18, he begins to broaden this conversation. More than just talking about wisdom by definitions or by claims or by lifestyle, James now wants us to be able to discern what is and what is not true wisdom. He wants us to be able to tune our minds, tune our hearts, tune our understanding to what is wisdom that comes from God and what is the wisdom of this world. This is such an important, such a pivotal point within this particular letter. I've shared this morning with the pastors at the 7 a.m. time that we get together for prayer and also the group that came at 7.45 for prayer. I have a greater burden about this message and about these verses since even Friday when finishing the message. The more I think about the implications of what it means for individual believers to be able to clearly discern what is wisdom of the world and for the Holy Spirit to bring conviction 
on any area where the world's wisdom has crept into our life, crept into our family, and crept into our church. I've got a greater burden on that than I think I can ever remember. I am begging you today, please ask the Spirit of God to speak directly to your heart. It's one thing for somebody to get up and to say, here's what God taught me. It's another thing for people to walk in and say, God, I need to hear what you have to say for my life. That being said, I'm going to invite you at this time, turn with me in your Bibles, James chapter number three. James three, we're gonna be in verses 14 through 16. I'm speaking this morning on the subject of worldly wisdom. And I, I want to remind you that starting in verse 14, going through 18, there is now a process of discerning about the wisdom's source. Is it worldly wisdom or is it godly wisdom? I want to remind you that even believers have the ability to take some of the world's wisdom into their life and some of God's wisdom into their life. And if they can't clearly discern between the two, there's parts of their life that are in unstable and falling apart and problematic. And there's parts that are stable and going well and are honoring to God. And sometimes it's hard in the moment to say, God, what part of my life has been aligned with wisdom from your word? So it is so important for us to be able to discern this. Here's what the text says, James chapter 3, starting in verse number 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're asking, Lord, right now that you would clearly use your word in order to speak to our hearts. I pray that you would give us unbelievable clarity. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to restate the two big truths that we introduced this last week. These truths are important going all the way through from verse 13 through verse number 18. Big truth number one is when asserting wisdom, our claims are evaluated by our conduct. That was found in verse number 13, and I've just kind of gone back and reiterated that part in the introduction. But big truth number two is when pursuing wisdom, our course is determined by our source. Uh, that is, just as much as you reap what you sow, it is equally true that the wisdom you pursue will determine the course of your life. Origin determines outcome. Worldly wisdom produces worldly results. Godly wisdom will produce godly results. So at the end of this last week, I encourage people to do some homework. I encourage people to go into study and, and see the difference between first and second, or first Corinthians chapters one and two. See the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And here's a quick overview of that. Uh, in first Corinthians one and two, it describes the wisdom of God being in opposition to the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world is the cleverness and the best thoughts of humanity. Chapter one, verse 19. It is the wisdom of the age, chapter 2, verse 6. 
That, that means it, it changes with culture. It, it shifts with leaders and rulers. It, it's the ideas that are connected to that specific moment in time. The wisdom of the world sees God's wisdom as a stumbling block and illogical and something that is foolish. Chapter 1, verse 23. Now, there's a reason the wisdom of the world sees the wisdom of God as illogical and a stumbling block and foolishness. There's a reason for that. Do you remember the basic idea that we gave of knowledge and, and wisdom? That is, here it is. Wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. Whatever is accepted as knowledge becomes the basis for that person's understanding of wisdom. And the world has rejected the knowledge of God. Therefore, the world has no basis for the wisdom of God. The world has rejected everything that points to God's reality, to his character, to his will, to his word, to his attributes. And, and it's not only that. The issue is the world knows the things of God. It's not that those pieces of God's character and attributes have been hidden from the world, but rather according to Romans chapter 1, it's been clearly seen by the world, just rejected. I, I want you to write that passage off the side. In fact, not just write it, turn over with me Romans chapter 1 for just a moment. Romans 1. God has not been hiding. The world just has not wanted to see what he revealed. Romans 1 gives us incredible description of humanity's rejection of the knowledge of God and the results that came from that rejection. So starting in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and by the way, if you're wondering why I'm kind of working around this topic, I need you to see the power, the implications of the origins of wisdom. Where did it come from? Worldly wisdom, that is. I need you to see from the whole of Scripture how important this conversation is. And then we're going to go into verses 14 through 16. That part is very clear. It's getting to that point that is so important. So here's what it says, starting in verse 18 and following. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Here's the phrase, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. In, in other words, the truth is there. He has made it evident in humanity, and he has made it evident to humanity. The issue, according to that text, is that people suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. They don't want to consider what he says because they would rather embrace sin. Picking up in verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart, not wise, their foolish heart was darkened. This text describes the wisdom of the world and it's not that it's wise, it's not that it's knowledgeable, it's described as foolish. It says they knew that there was a God. They just simply chose not to honor him or to thank him. Look at what it says in verse 24. Therefore God gave them over. There's no forcing, there's no coercion. 
If people willingly choose to believe a lie, even after God has made himself known in creation and known in their conscience and known in Christ and known in the word, if a person chooses to willingly believe a lie after that, listen, God allows them to believe it. He gives them over to their own delusions. Pick up with what it says in verse 25 and 26. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. For this reason, God gave them over. There's that statement again. God gave them over. The text says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. In other words, they knew the truth about God. They just didn't like the truth that they knew about God. Acknowledging God's existence brings a new level of accountability. Sinful people don't want accountability. Sinful people simply want acceptance of sinful actions and practices. So instead of acknowledging God for who he is and being accountable, they've tried to ignore him. They worshiped what he made instead of worshiping him. And don't miss this, they worshiped. They worshiped. Do not think that worship is just something religious people do. Everyone worships. The issue is, what are we worshiping? Who are we worshiping? Why are we worshiping? Humanity will worship someone or something. We will either worship our creator in spirit and in truth, or we will worship a part of his creation in rebellion and foolishness, but rest assured, we're going to worship Anytime we give our best, our highest love, and our deepest affection to something, it is an act of worship. People can worship their, career, their careers by making their career the most important part of their life. People can worship their favorite sports teams. Watch out now. They can worship their favorite sports teams by giving their best giving their most, giving their highest adoration to a sports team. I grew up playing sports. I've been known to watch a game or two. I've been known to yell at a television at least once or twice. I can get passionate about sports as well. But listen, our worship wires have somehow gotten crossed when we struggle to gather together with the people of God and sing God's praises, and yet we will drive ours and sit in the blazing hot sun to shout with thousands of other people about a game that will be forgotten next week. Something is wrong in that. And listen, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with sports. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being excited about it. I am saying when we don't have the same love and adoration and passion and desire for the things of God, when the things of his word do not stir up inside of us with something at least equal to that of the world, something's wrong in our heart when it comes to worship. They worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. Finally, it says in verse 28 of Romans 1, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. Oh, what a scary phrase. 
Is it possible? This, it got all over me this morning. Is it possible that some of us have reached a spiritual plateau in our life because we are unwilling to reject the world's wisdom? And God's saying, that's as far as I can take you on the path of my wisdom. Until you say no to that, here's where you're going to be settling in. These are going to be the problems you continue to face. These are the issues that will be a part of your life. It's either that we reject the world's wisdom or either we get caught in between with a little bit of the world and a little bit of God. It is a dangerous and a fearful thing when people have so consistently rejected, dismissed, and ignored, suppressing the truth of God, that in his sovereign holiness, God gets to a point where he says, if that's what you desire, your will be done. And he gives us over to the very things that we're saying we worship and desire more than him. Please hear this. Any claim of wisdom that starts with the rejection of the knowledge of God is foolishness wrapped up in clever words. It does not change. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man. And it ends in destruction. Did you know that in front of every single one of us right now, there is a path in which you've got one path that leads to life and one that's leading to death. And moment by moment, decision by decision, we're coming to that intersection. And the question becomes, which path will you take? And if we cannot discern the difference between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom, we often take the wrong path. And, and did you know that it doesn't matter if it came from a Christian friend? If it's the world's wisdom, it's still the world's wisdom. It can come from a Christian source. It can be preached from a pulpit. You can read in a Christian book. You can find it in a devotional. It doesn't matter if it's the world's wisdom. If you tack a Bible verse onto the end of it, it doesn't make it Christian. Now it just makes it confusing. We're, we're at that place where one of the reasons I'm doing these worldview nights is the church of Jesus Christ, the, as a whole, big C, we have lost our ability to discern between what is right and wrong, what is of God and what is of the world. And here's the issue. So many times the world's wisdom has crept into the church to the point we're having a hard time distinguishing anything. If it's in the word, it needs to be in the church. It needs to be in your family. It needs to be in our life and in our culture. If it's in the word, this, this is the place we know there's stability. This is the place we know we're not going to go wrong. This is the place where when we follow what God says, it leads to life and abundance and prosperity and blessing. It doesn't mean all of life is going to be great, but there is stability that comes when we walk in the word of God. But when we say, I know what God says, but... 
Remember what you truly believe is on the other side of your but. When you say, I know what God says, but here's how I feel, then you don't actually believe what God just said. I better move along. I'm never going to get to my outline at this point. So here's, here's what I want you to see. 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2 also talks about the wisdom of God. And it says, it is a mystery, chapter 2, verse 7. That means you're not always going to understand the wisdom of God, and he is not obligated to connect every dot. There are some pieces he will reveal, and there's going to be some he just says you're going to have to trust me on. The wisdom of God is hidden from eternity past and cannot be understood by those who do not know him. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 God's wisdom points to God's glory, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Worldly wisdom is foolishness to God, chapter 1, verse 20. And God's wisdom is foolishness to the world, chapter 2, verse 14. All of that leads to that second big truth. When pursuing wisdom, our course is determined by our source. The wisdom you pursue will determine the course of your life. Worldly wisdom brings worldly results. Godly wisdom brings godly results. So where did any of this worldly wisdom even begin? You know, like, does it really matter? It really does. It really does. Worldly wisdom, as best we can trace it, starts in Genesis chapter 3. It's in Genesis 3 that Satan deceived Eve by getting her to doubt God's word, to disobey God's command, and to dismiss God's wisdom. Satan told Eve that God is holding you back from you becoming everything you can possibly be. And if she ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the day she ate it, he said, you will be like God. I want you to listen to the clarity that comes out of Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and here it is, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Did you know God never said the fruit was not good for eating? He did not say it was not delightful to look at. He did not say that it would not even bring a type of knowledge. What he did say is don't eat it. You see, that's, that's the issue when it comes to the wisdom of the world. The path to worldly wisdom is paved with attractive offers, uh, appealing to those sinful desires that we have, also bringing deceptive initiatives to get us to believe that God is somehow holding us back from what we could actually become. It is all a distraction to get us to reject God in his person and reject God in his word. Since Genesis chapter three, Satan continues to lure people away from godly wisdom by telling them that they can have exactly what they want and they can be their own God. My friends, Satan is a liar. There are untold billions of people who have shipwrecked their lives on the shores of that deception. Somebody might be saying, Paul, if it is that bad, why in the world do people still pursue worldly wisdom? Why don't they pursue God's wisdom? 
I can't tell you every reason why every person rejects God's wisdom, but I can give you four of the main reasons. Here's the first, availability. Worldly wisdom is everywhere. If you want to hear what the world thinks, you don't have to look hard. You can find it in just about every bookstore, website, counseling office, social media platform, blog, podcast. If you're looking for the world's wisdom, it's there. The world's wisdom is available on talk shows and psychic hotlines, horoscopes, chat rooms, and in the church. The world's wisdom is available. By the way, when churches stray from God's word, it always ends in worldly wisdom. Always. The second reason is flexibility. Worldly wisdom allows people to hold on to their personal opinions, their destructive lifestyles, their habits without feeling guilty for them. You can do your own thing regardless of who it hurts, and society will make you feel better about bad decisions. There's flexibility. It's you do you. It's okay. Here's another one. Familiarity. Worldly wisdom is what we're used to hearing. It feels comfortable. It's kind of like that old stinky pair of shoes that messes up the whole house and doesn't go with a single outfit, but you can't stand to get rid of them because it's comfortable. That's the world's wisdom. And by the way, when it comes to a person going through trying times, one of the things they run to is what feels the most comfortable. When it comes to walking in the wisdom of God, it is so different than what you're used to, it doesn't feel comfortable. Here's the fourth one, popularity. Worldly wisdom is the majority opinion. Most people believe it, most people think it's great. So sometimes instead of calling more attention to yourself or the problem you're walking through, it's just easier to go with what everybody else is saying and suggesting. There are so many reasons why people continue to pursue worldly wisdom. But the end result is always the same. Verse 16 tells us, it leads to confusion, division, and every evil thing. So now I want us to finish out. I want you to see the motivation. I want you to see the origin. And also want you to see the results of worldly wisdom. And this is very fast. First, the motivation of worldly wisdom. It's found in verse number 14. He mentions two motivating factors. The first is bitter jealousy. He uses a term here that describes the worst form of jealousy. It is jealousy that is harsh and sharp and cutting and destructive. It is jealousy that doesn't care about anyone else or the pain that is being inflicted on them. Those who embrace worldly wisdom, they don't care about what happens to others because they've embraced the idea that life is all about them. Because they're now at the center of their own world, they've created a world that now revolves around self. So that in this world, they start to believe that their ideas, their desires, their standard should be the measurement for everything and everyone else. And whatever and whoever serves those ends is considered to be friendly. And whatever and whoever challenges those ends is considered to be a threat. The second motivating factor is selfish ambition. 
Selfish ambition describes the person who lives in a state of strife and contentiousness and extreme selfishness. It's all about them. It's all about what they want. Self-centeredness and selfish ambition are always manifested, according to verse 14, in arrogance. Think about those motivating factors for just a moment. Pride, selfish ambition, self-centeredness, self-interest, self-aggrandizement. When those traits are those that are being embraced, it spawns a society where the mottos are, it's all about you. Do what makes you happy. You need to look out for number one. That's the culture that is developed out of this. And we have to be unbelievably clear with this. If a person professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ and their life is characterized by pride, self-centeredness, being loveless towards others, contentious, strifeful, all of those things, according to the text, the person is a fraud. Look at what he says right there in verse 14. That person lies against the truth. Their life is going against the gospel message. It goes against the teachings of the New Testament. Now, there's an origin of worldly wisdom found in verse 15. It says, this wisdom is not that which comes from above, but that which is earthly, natural, demonic. James presents three of the most distinct characteristics of worldly wisdom. And those three pieces coincide with the three enemies of the Christian life. That is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Worldly wisdom is earthly. That is, it's of this world. It is natural. That means it is of the flesh. And it is demonic. That means it is of the devil. Our earthly wisdom is restricted to those things that people can see and theorize and discover and they can accomplish by themselves. In that type of wisdom, there's no place for God. There's no place for revelation. There's no place for illumination. There's no place for something that doesn't fit into what we can cram into our mind. Then it talks about natural wisdom. It refers to those things of fallen, unredeemed humanity who is wholly corrupt by sin and separated from God. According to what we find in 1 Corinthians 2, that same passage, I encourage you to study. It says, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Those who live by natural wisdom will live by their feelings, live by their impulses, live by their desires, not live by the truths of God's word. And then there's demonic wisdom. It finds its source in Satan himself as he's working through demons. Timothy warned in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, that in later times some would fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Worldly wisdom is nothing other than the foolishness of demons. So what's the result of that? Where does it lead? Verse 16 tells us. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. He reiterates in this the two motives behind it, that of jealousy and selfish ambition. And what he does is he describes the fact when those things are there, 
There is going to be disorder in every evil thing. It's the most broad categories you can create. Disorder has a basic meaning of instability. It's also used of a state of confusion and disturbance and disarray and tumult and even anarchy. Can we just stop for a moment in this and think? Think about the world we're in right now. Think about any headline from any news outlet. Think about the stories that you're hearing from friends and neighbors. Think about those things. We live in a world right now that is the epitome of living in a state of confusion and disturbance and disarray and tumult and, yes, even anarchy. And when people ask the question, what happened? How did we get here? What went wrong along the way? They don't really want to know the answer because the answer is we are reaping the end results of generations rejecting the person of God, generations rejecting the word of God, generations rejecting the wisdom of God. And now we are seeing the full effect of that. And everybody's like, how did it happen? It didn't come in overnight. It came in because the body of Christ could not discern between worldly wisdom and the wisdom of God. It came in because those pieces got infiltrated into the church. It came in because we were entertaining generations to death instead of discipling them with the truths of God's word. It came in because we've been asleep at the wheel when it looks around at culture. It came in because the body of Christ has not been the body of Christ. And then we, then we have the audacity to say, I can't believe the world would do that. My friends, the world is acting exactly the way they're going to act when they're separated from God. What we should be saying is, I can't believe the church would sit quietly when we have been given resources and truth and wisdom from above. I cannot believe that we would be sitting here saying, it's somebody else's deal to, to focus on. It's the body of Christ who's called to reach the world. And if we just sit here and say, well, it was good service on Sunday. Can you believe somebody got in my seat? I don't even know if I like that song. One day, one day, we will be embarrassed if the Holy Spirit gets a hold of our heart and says, what did you make of this other than pointing people to me? Did you know that the greatest issue we're facing it as a church is not can you get a crowd in on Sunday? You can get a crowd in with entertainment. The biggest issue is not did we have a crowd. The issue is did we make much of Jesus when they got here? The issue is when people left, did they leave with the word? The issue is when we worship, did we worship in spirit and in truth? The issue is did men and women and boys and girls find out about the fact that they are loved by a great God. They have been created for a relationship. Their sins separated that relationship and Jesus did everything needed in order to reconcile it. Do people walk away out of a New Testament church today with more hope for the fact that tomorrow can be better? Or do we walk out with the world's wisdom and a Bible verse attached to the end of it?
Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. My prayer is, God, would you bring people into the service today who are desperate for the Spirit of God to move? And listen, and people who are expecting that the Spirit will move through his power, through his word, in his body to transform somebody's life. Where did that type of expectation go? Today, before you came, were you praying, God, lay my soul bare before you and take out anything in my life that does not align with you? Are you praying and asking God to move? We have unbelievable truth that can set people free. But people don't know. But we've been called to take the message to them. The results of worldly wisdom is the fact that it brings disorder in every evil thing. Every evil thing is the broadest possible category of bad results produced by human wisdom. Evil means worthless, vile, contemptible. The basic idea is nothing of ultimate good and value is going to come from human wisdom. Put all of it together. Wisdom from the world is motivated by bitter envy and selfish ambition. It finds its origin in the three enemies of the Christian faith. The world, the flesh, and the devil. This is wisdom based on human achievement, fostered in the lives of the unredeemed, and authored by the father of lies. And the end result is it brings confusion and division and every evil thing. It is imperative that believers know how to discern between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. It's imperative. So I encourage you right now, this is just a time of invitation. If you would, bow your heads with me for just a moment. I encourage you right now to simply ask God, where in my life at this point have I embrace the wisdom of the world where I am following a path of the world's wisdom, the world's philosophy, the world's ideas. Where in my life right now have I allowed these teachings to impact my family, where I've encouraged my family to embrace worldly wisdom instead of biblical, godly wisdom? Where right now in our church can we look around and say, have we embraced the world's wisdom instead of God's wisdom? Ask God to reveal those things. I am praying, I'm praying, I'm praying that the more we go into the word and the more we ask the spirit to reveal and to illumine that he is so clear and what he shows us, that there's no way we can run from it. 
going to give a word of invitation. There's going to be pastors. There's going to be counselors that will be along the front. It may be that this morning, God's already brought to your mind areas where you've embraced the world's wisdom. I beg of you, repent of it. Drop it before God. Don't walk out of this room carrying that same peace. It may be that there's pieces in your life right now that you're saying, I don't even know where to begin. Like it's hard for me to discern between what is now of God and what's of the world. God will help clarify those when we are serious with him and we say, God, it's all yours. Whatever you choose to do, it's yours. I don't know where God might be working in your heart. It, it might be that there are couples saying, we need to pray for our family. Might be that there's dads who are saying, I need somebody to pray for me that I lead well in the home. It, it might be teenagers that are walking through difficult times and there's peer pressure coming around them and they don't want to take the wrong path, but they feel isolated and alone and they just want to know somebody is there for I don't know where you might be today. I encourage you today to respond as the Spirit of God prompts you. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask, Lord, today, would you be the one to do the work? God, unless your Spirit clarifies and convicts and draws, God, I don't know what changes after that. So, Lord, may you do what only you can. In Jesus' name, amen.